Hello, welcome to Talking Transatlantic with Talina Kapari in America. And in the United Kingdom, Richard Wilson. In this podcast, we are talking space again. I suspect this is a passion of yours, Richard. Uh, maybe it is, maybe. But our imaginations have been captured once again in going to outer space by things like the, the launch of SpaceX, who are currently on a mission, the two crew members, to the International Space Station. But where do we go next as we boldly go where? Uh, yeah, where? 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 No one has gone before. Well, our special guest has some of the answers to these big questions. So, Talina, did you watch the uh, SpaceX launch? Unfortunately, I did not. But <gasps> I read about it late. I know. Can you believe it? This, it- is, this is America going to space on their own again without hitching a ride on the Russian... Uh, I know. I've been watching, let's see, uh, protests, coronavirus, looting, cops. <laughs> so I missed out on the space launch. Well, well that's okay, Tadina, because we're going to be able to uh, explain all. Exactly. But now we can hear all about it. So that's yeah. much better. Do you want to introduce our guest? You're, you, shall, you should introduce him. Do you? Okay, I'm well, more than happy. Well, it is Dr. Flevin Bowen. He is an expert in modern warfare, politics, and security in outer space. Flevin, good to good to meet you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming. Um, so just to clear this up, this isn't a rugby player who's turned to become a scientist. So no, uh, no. <laughs> just the for same those of name. You, if you uh, Google, uh, um, use Google, uh, what is it? A famous rugby player, a Welsh rugby union player. Former Welsh captain in the 1970s. Oh, okay. So your dad was a fan, was he? Very much so, yes. As, <laughs> as uh, most Welsh people who lived in the 1970s, it was all about the rugby. <laughs> uh, still are, still are. And some English people as well, I believe. Um, Do you like rugby? Yeah, I follow the internationals, uh, so same as football, but in terms of uh, league or divisional stuff, uh, not particularly a close follower of either sport. But didn't you get some of the credit for the the other Blevins um, charity work recently on Twitter? Yeah, so it was a bit of a funny mix-up on Twitter um, for Torvine uh, uh, Rugby Club. Um, there'd been some um, uh, local fundraising work going on and uh, the person mistakenly tagged uh, me rather than the actual old, uh, former uh, rugby captain uh, who's from Torvine, uh, Bled and Bowen. So um, I got all the credit on Twitter um, and uh, they didn't correct the tweet either. They just um, you know, carried on. <laughs> so do you have um, loads more followers now as a result of this? Uh, no, there's been negligible impact on that front. Um, I think partially because the other Blevin Bowen doesn't really have much of a Twitter presence. He is on there, but um, it's a very minimal presence. Ah, I see. Yeah, you're famous for the right reasons, for knowing all about space. What do you uh, teach at the university? Is your class just on space or travel to space, or could you elaborate more? Uh, so um, there are two primary modules I'm in charge of um, at uh, the School of History, Politics and International Relations at Leicester University. So um, the first one is my third year undergraduate module, Politics and War in Outer Space. Um, there's, a, there's a video of that, about that on YouTube, actually, that I recorded the other week. 
Um, so um, uh, that uh, is about uh, international history, international relations, um, techno politics, and security and international governance in space. So it's a bit of a smorgasbord of every political issue about space that you can think of uh, in one way or another. And that's for third year undergraduates or the finalists. Uh, the second module I'm in charge of is uh, Cold War history. Um, so uh, the global Cold War, international relations, 1945 to 1989. Um, and that is sort of a more standard international history and a global history of, of the Cold War from uh, uh, an international relations uh, perspective. So in space, we've seen, uh, you know, you get all these politics happening in, in on, on Earth uh, and, and obviously space recent disagreements between the West and Russia um, recently firing up again. But in space, it seems to be neutral. We have Russians, Americans, Europeans on, on the space station. That's a good thing, is it? And is it, is it as I can see it? Um, I mean, it's important to remember that what the International Space Station is, is really quite the tip of the iceberg in terms of the totality of what's going on in outer space that is relevant to human civilization, and it's it's um, if if you if you can break down quite crudely all space activities into maybe four sectors: uh, military, um, uh, civil, uh, commercial, um, and um, sort of uh, ex exploration. Uh, and um, the space station is quite a marginal feature of you know the civil and, and exploration or the space science aspects. Um, it doesn't really tell you much about what's going on in space on the commercial or industrial front or on the military or intelligence side. So um, in terms of the symbolism, um, it's very important and it's what most people think about in terms of modern space activities. Um, and it's, it's a go-to image for most people. Um, I mean, if they're not thinking about that, they're usually thinking about the Apollo uh, moon missions. Um, but it's very much, um, I mean, strategically and economically, it's quite a sideshow, to be honest. It's not the most important thing that's going on in space right now. Uh, it's important if, in the long term if you believe that we have to become, you know, a, a, you know, a multi-planetary species or civilization or however you want to phrase that. But in, in very instrumental terms, it's not that important or relevant in, in you know, every day. Um, so there are two and a half thousand plus satellites, active satellites, um, whizzing around Earth right now. So in Earth orbit, these satellites are providing a series of um, services and gathering different sorts of data for users on Earth in the military intelligence communities, uh, for industrial and commercial uses, and also for civilian infrastructure purposes as well. So that's where the bulk of important space activities are happening. And that infrastructure in space and those satellite constellations, they are uh, launched, operated and used by um, almost everyone in some way. Um, and about 70 plus um, states or non-state actors like companies um, own or operate satellites in Earth orbit uh, as well. So when we talk about the politics of space, for me, it's really about the politics of those machines flying around Earth right now and the history of those systems uh, and the policies and the governance of them as well. So whilst human and crude spaceflight is, of course, important and is a necessary aspect of understanding politics and history of space, it's very much um, a more marginal issue because it's, it's, it's expensive, but it's more symbolic and maybe long-term 
in its scope, perhaps, compared to the strategic, military and economic rationales of space technology today. So two and a half thousand satellites. Uh, I didn't actually know the actual number. That, that's quite a lot of activity up there. All around the world. Oh, oh orbiting the planet, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so two and a half thousand satellites, and that number has grown very quickly in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, from about 1,200 satellites in 2012 to 2,500 today. Wow, so more than doubled. Yeah. yeah. So what sort of jobs are they doing up there, then, these satellites? So um, so one, one service that most people would probably be familiar with is satellite television. Yeah. So yes, you're looking okay, outside. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm back in. So, you know, you see them every day, but I really wonder how many people actually cotton on that you're looking at the satellite dishes, they're communicating with machines that you can't see, um, mm-hmm. and they're in geostationary orbits. Um, so that's a classic use uh, of it, because as the Earth turns uh, at a certain speed, a satellite in geostationary orbit is travelling at such a speed that its orbit matches the rotation of Earth, and therefore it looks like it's stationary at the same point from our perspective. So that's why you can point your dish to where the satellite is, and you know that you're going to get the radio uh, beam uh, from that. Other satellites, though, in low Earth orbit, um, they are uh, they circle the Earth every 90 minutes, um, and they are much much closer. So they can they are better used for um, uh, imagery satellites, so taking pictures. So if you see images from companies like Planet Labs or Digital Globe, um, or even um, uh, American intelligence photography satellites. They will be from low Earth orbit at the ranges of from 200 kilometers to 1500 kilometers altitude. Geostationary orbit is at 36,000 kilometers altitude above the equator. Um, so, um, so as well as the imagery satellites in low Earth orbit, there are some other communication satellites like Iridium satellite phones. So, if you see people oh, yeah. using sat phones in the wild somewhere or in you know the the polar regions where there's very little terrestrial mobile network infrastructure you'll see them use a sat phone there's a good chance that they're using satcoms to do that satellite communications so satcoms is a really important part of satellite infrastructure pioneered in the 1960s arthur c clark wrote one of the first papers on geostationary satellites in the mid-1940s so it wasn't until the 1960s that they were actually able to put that in practice once um both the Soviets and the Americans had sort of um, the heavy lift capability to put these big commsats out 36,000 kilometers away from Earth. Um, so imagery satellites, the other important bit, uh, weather satellites. So whenever you see um, those big pictures of, you know, weather fronts coming in and whatnot, that's from satellite imagery. Um, and um, again, it, it's, it's we, we all use space technology, but somehow it's sort of been missed in the perception of people's use of space, this infrastructure in space that is now in everyday use for us. The other big one is GPS or satellite navigation. So everybody knows what GPS is now. Um, After the 1991 Gulf War, everyone in military circles knew what GPS was because um, it proved the ability of the US uh, military to launch uh, missiles to within like less than a meter accuracy. Um, So you didn't need to cap that bomb somewhere to hit one tank. You could launch one missile and hit that one tank. Um, Or you could hit one particular building in a city without having to destroy the entire 
uh, quarter of a city to do it. Um, so, so that was demonstrated in the Gulf War. In subsequent wars, the Americans then perfected it further and rolled that out en masse. But of course, parallel to that in the 1990s, you have the civilian uses of GPS massively take off. So you have um, cartography and civil engineering use it first. And then by the 2000s, it entered everybody's cars and you could get navigation. So you, get, you could get lost in a new way uh, with sat nav. <laughs> so, um, when yeah. so when you're screaming at your, um, your sat nav going, why are you taking me this way? <laughs> We're not appreciating the complex um, technology and science which is actually behind these things. Yeah, and GPS took about 25 years from sort of first initial design to it actually being good enough for the military to use in 1991. So these are long-term infrastructure projects. And GPS um, and other kind similar sort of services um, operated by other countries, they're in medium-earth orbits, so they're around 22,000 kilometres altitude. So all your smartphones and stuff now, they are almost always communicating with navigation satellites that are about 22,000 kilometers above us. That's no, mind-blowing. GPS is better than ever because I still won't use my GPS because it always takes me the wrong way. Last time I used it, <laughs> I, went, I ended up in Mexico, which was totally fine too. But Hang on, hang on. Where did you start? From? Hang on. In San Diego because we're on the border. I needed to go like close to Mexico, but I was supposed to go another freeway, but they took me on the freeway that goes directly to Mexico when it says last U.S. exit and you're going through and you can't turn around so, so i'm a little old school i like map question i write it out i like look i'm probably the only person that does because it's kind of, it's, the gps probably but i didn't realize that about that's why we have the gps from all these satellites when i when i first started working in sheffield and i didn't know where i was going my i would walk and i would type it into my phone and it would tell me where to go so literally a satellite or a constellation of satellites is helping me get 200 yards across mm -hmm. Sheffield. That is that is quite And it's not just yeah. the American one now either. I mean, it mm -hmm. used to be that the US Air Force had the monopoly of guiding bombs to within great accuracy or guiding you to your lover for the night on uh, location-based <laughs> dating apps. Now the Europeans <laughs> have a system, the Chinese have a system, and the Russians have rebuilt their system after it fell to pieces after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh. So most, so depending on um, how new your smartphone is, if you have a smartphone, um, chances are that it's, it's talking to all four of those systems now, which means your civilian signal is more reliable and accurate than it's ever been, say, 10 years ago when it was just talking to GPS. How did uh, it so pay for that? Who, who so the Americans basically invented the GPS during the Gulf War. This is what I'm getting at. Uh, in the Cold War. It's a Cold in the Cold War. Technology. Okay, so it started with the Americans, but now Europe and the Chinese, everyone has their own. Yeah, I mean, the Russian one is also a Cold War era. but um, Oh, it is, okay. But they rebuilt it after it fell into disrepair in the 1990s because of, well, they had no yeah. money. Essentially. Yeah. That, just, that's interesting because nobody really thinks about it. They just like, hey, Siri, and talking to their phone, but they don't yeah. know why, where it came from. It's just like, okay, <laughs> this is how it is. So all your location-based apps and, and the service economy is based on that satellite navigation data. Yeah. Um, and, and basically, uh, you know, they made that system to license it out to companies to pay, to pay for the technology to use it on, on their data. Right. So for the consumer, it's free. But the um, companies that develop the hardware have to pay for the chip technology. So they made some money that way. 
Um, but the US government really made more money out of taxing the new economy um, that came from it rather than charging companies a lot to use the civilian GPS technology. This, this, because obviously I was thinking when you buy, well, in the old days, you go out and buy a TomTom sat nav, and mm-hmm. that was it. You didn't, you didn't pay rental on the satellite because I remember no. using um, satellite, little satellite dishes when I was at the World Service, BBC World Service, to, um, you know, to, to broadcast remotely. And it was really, really expensive. Is it, and sat phones were really expensive, mm-hmm. um, you know, several dollars a, a minute. Uh, are those prices much reduced now? Um, I don't know about um, sat phone services. Um, mm. I've never had a course to use them, so I, <laughs> yeah. so I don't know much on the consumer end um, prices. Like, it's still, I mean, they're still more expensive than you know your normal phone plan because yeah. um, the Iridium constellation has sixty six satellites in low Earth orbit, uh, plus a few spares. So that's a very expensive thing to maintain. So there's still a lot of costs in that uh, as well. Um, but the consumer end, the actual phone itself, is relatively cheap compared to that fleet of, of satellites, really. But um, with the TomTom thing, a lot of the money on that went on the software development and just um, uh, miniaturizing everything needed to have that sat-nav display yeah. on a small screen that could fit in your car. So that miniaturization is where the money went on your TomTom rather than <laughs> uh, buying the GPS technology. The US military had already paid for that and just sort of letting the civilian economy ride on the back of it. The um, so the, the recent SpaceX launch got a lot of um, uh, publicity because not only is America launching to the space station again, but because it was seen as um, the first commercial carrier of manned crew. But from what you're telling us about uh, the majority of the uh, activity in space, so, you know, there's a great deal of that already is commercial and has been for some time. Uh, yeah, so so there's there's a lot a lot of hullabaloo about um, SpaceX being a new era in commercial space flight in the United <laughs> yeah. States, um, and really it isn't. I mean, essentially what it is is NASA has contracted out a system and a service as opposed to components. Um, NASA has always used contractors. Mm. Um, tens of thousands of contractors were involved in you know, NASA projects from the start. I mean, you can look up the figures on contractors for the Apollo project, which is massive in itself. So there's always been strong sort of commercial provider element in almost everything NASA does. What NASA's done is centralise the programme oversight and processes and planning and design and then farm it out to contractors to fulfil what they wanted. All that's done now has just gone sort of one step above and said, right, we just want to pay for a taxi now. We don't want to do the taxi stuff ourselves. So, you know, so that's that's really what it is. And it's not really new era in commercial in the commercial space economy because the demand is supplied by the government, by public sector uh, fi- financing. Um, it's the governments around the world that are paying for the ISS, the International Space Station. So um, just to, um, on, on um, crewed space flights rather than manned, uh, we should say, um, as the proper terminology uh, as well. So in terms of crewed space flight, that's not you can't you can't make money out of crewed space flight, and you won't be able to for a very long time. So it's not a new era in commercial space flight, not at all. Um, so the, the the money in commercial space systems is in communications and imagery satellites and data gathering satellites that's where the money is and that has a longer history as well commercial satcoms um, is about 20 25 years old if not more depending how you define it 
So that commercial element space has been there for quite some time already. Um, so it's not a sea change really in the grand scheme of things. But um, but if Elon Musk has money to burn on things, then of course, who knows where it will go next. I have an interesting fact, and I hope it's true. Um, we'll the, find uh, out. <laughs> the Eurovision Song Contest, um, as everyone in the UK will know about, and so does Talina, um, maybe not so many people in, in America. How would you describe the European Song Contest to any Americans, Talina, who don't know it? Well, they asked uh, how Mamma Mia came into place. ABBA, they won Eurovision one year, right? Yeah, yeah, they did, yeah. So I would say to Americans, it's really, really bad songs that are hilarious to watch, and you get a winner, it's competed with all the countries in Europe. <laughs> and and so weirdly, Israel, so Australia as well. It's Australia. so funny. But it was. Um, I, I'm told that it was the um, that, that the, the first sort of European communications satellite, um, a Telstar, went up, and they wanted to showcase it. So what they did is they had this um, competition, song competition, where everybody was linked from their individual countries to vote on it through Telstar, and it was just a way of showing off how this satellite operated. Have you you haven't heard that, have you, Blevin? No, I, I'm not. No, I've not come across that Telstar Eurovision link uh, before. Um, but I think Telstar itself was one of the early sort of American comsats, ah, right. rather than European. Unless, yes. I mean, sometimes names can carry over, so there might be some Telstar project somewhere in European early it's European more, space. More that you which I can't my... remember. Yeah, maybe it's a hole in my uh, interesting fact, <laughs> but uh, I have to Google that and check on it. But it's um, it, it is the um, it is the norm, though. I mean, when we're talking to Talina in America right now, will we be connected to her through a satellite communication, or will it be one of those hard cables under the Atlantic? Yeah, this would be fibre optic cable um, at the on, on the seabed. Right. Um, so, internet. Um, satellite internet connection. That's what's Elon Musk's other project called. It's the his um, constellation. Star, Star, Starlink. Starlink. Yes. So, oh, Talina, Talina just disappeared off, and she's now come back. Okay, right, young baby. Take, take yes. a little break sometimes because I'm baby and a crazy dog. So this, by the way, Blood, let, let's introduce you to Sparkles, who's also called. Oh yeah, she's, she's very Hello. enthralled. Conversation. Oh. All satellites <laughs> in space. <laughs> you woke up to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah. So, so Talina, time. would you go to space if you could? Me or who are you talking to? Yeah, you. Oh, yeah. I didn't hear. You. Um, no, I don't even want to try surfing because I'm afraid of deep water. So space, no. Hang on. <laughs> okay, so you're scared of surfing because of deep water. I actually I hate flying. You fly more than anyone, Selena. I know, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, where are we then, uh, Blevin? Do you think... Um, uh, was it Richard Branson, though, has his... Isn't he planning his whole Yeah, thing? nobody sold it. He, oh, sold he, his, he sold his stake in, in Virgin Galactic to help support um, the airline because, obviously, the airlines are struggling oh, nice. with, with the coronavirus and nobody's flying. So apparently he sold his stake in, in, in Virgin Galactic. Are we are we going to see space tourism, do you think, Blevin, in the in the near future? Well, we already have seen it. 
there's been mm. a few um, people on the ISS um, who I, I guess would be, could be classed as space tourists. They paid their own way to get onto the ISS. Um, if I remember correctly, though, I'm sure there'll be angry hate mail if I get this wrong. Um, <laughs> but the first British person, uh, British citizen in space, uh, Helen Sharman, I think she could be classed as, as, a, as a space tourist. Um, I think she paid her own way um, somehow to get onto the International Space Station. I can't remember if there was a... Uh, what what the funding sources were, but that was sort of one of these sort of more open ticketing systems for the ISS when, um, well, they really needed the money in the late nineties for the Russians, um, and they were opening up rides. So, um, uh, so it has been seen before, but in terms of the model that Virgin Galactic is pushing, um, yeah. we have to wait and see. To you know, does the thing actually work? It's been in development for such a long time. Um, you know, the, the proof of concept was back in 2004, if I remember right, correctly. Yeah. It was for one of the big prizes. Um, and Richard Branson has been known to overpromise on Virgin Galactic time and time again. Um, and to be fair, though, you know, in the last five years, they have made serious progress with, with the technology. Um, but um, so, the, the, you know, if they're able to keep pumping the money into it, I'm sure they'll get there. Um, but as for the market, It'll be it'll be an elite thing. It won't be yeah. mass market. I, I have um, a how how much would you say? Like, if someone wanted to go to space, would they pay? Like, I mean, because um, it's for the elite. Like, you know, five thousand pounds or millions. Millions or I don't know. Well, it's it's millions to get to the International Space Station. Okay, so um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and it's about I think it's a quarter of a million dollars if they want to do Virgin Galactic. So that's for a short suborbital hop, uh, really. So that's a, just a very high altitude flight rather than actually going into orbit around Earth. Yeah. Um, so if you want a full orbital experience, you've got to fork out millions and get to the space station. Um, you- no, I'm not going to the space station. It's it's horrible. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you put on a tin can, they they fire you know the explo- explosives underneath you and then you spend a, a few months on a stinky noisy um, tin can in, in orbit when you basically have a constant cold uh, because of the zero g and how it affects your sinuses and things um, and that's if you manage to adapt to the um, to the to the relative weightlessness so no I'll give that a miss. Richard, <laughs> <laughs> would you go? Well, I did until I heard that. Here in Esther, the, um, the National Space Centre has a really good exhibit on the International Space Station and its effect, and the uh, effects of microgravity on, on the body. So uh, that, 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 that is putting scores of children off going into space. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think um, I, I'm maybe going to wait for Star Trek technology, which um, might... Be after I'm dead because I think, you just um, want to up. yeah, just just yeah, that doesn't fill me with confidence. Um, having my um atoms rearranged and beamed up, but yeah, they um, it, it does sound better than sitting on top of some explosives. But there are other technologies being um looked at, like the um, the, the saber engine from reactions, the engines, the British invention. Do, do you know much about that, uh, Bleden? Yeah, so um, yeah, they, they made a breakthrough last year, I think, on the coolant technology. So um, they're not quite up to the efficiency that that's theoretically needed, but they 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 really made serious progress. So there, there's potential promise there, but 
that's after 30 years of R&D to get to where mm. they are now. Um, and I think they're halfway there in terms of the cooling efficiency that they need or something. But again, more technically minded people will correct me on that. Because it's um, like a, a jet engine for the first part and then, it turn, and then the same engine becomes the rocket when they get high enough and out yeah, the atmosphere. Yeah, so, so it's a, sort of like a normal jet engine that becomes a scramjet, that becomes a rocket. Um, and yeah, I don't know, we'll see, but the engine is only one part of that as well because um, if you're going into um, hypersonic dynamic flight for any extended period of time um, and for it to be reusable, you know, you're really stretching material science. Um, mm. you, you know, the um, SR-71 Blackbird aircraft, which cruised at 21 kilometers altitude, space begins at about 100 kilometers. The space station oh, is right. a, a few hundred kilometers more. But when you're doing hypersonics in the 20 to 100 kilometers altitude, um, there's massive heat stresses on your airframe. Um, mm. And I don't think the material science is anywhere near having uh, a craft that, can fly as easily in and out of that transverse region at 80 kilometers of space at those speeds and keep on reusing that without having to rebuild it. I mean, that's a problem they had with the space shuttle. They effectively had to rebuild most of it between <laughs> each flight. You know, reusable <laughs> in the broadest sense of the term, you know, that was a space shuttle. So, so, so they might get the engine. I'm sure there'll be lots of applications for the cooling technology from that engine tech. Yeah. But for the Skylon space plane idea, there's a lot of other material science that needs to come together. So again, a long-term project, nothing that will change things anytime soon in, in uh, you know the current generation. You see, the, the, the problem is, isn't it, that um, science fiction is so far ahead of science fact that our expectations are, uh, uh, are so great. Yeah, um, I think um, well, it's, it's strange, really, because... When you get into the history of space technology, you figure out how much they could, you learn about how much um, at least the Americans could do from satellite and spy satellites to figure out what was going on on Earth. But it is pretty much science fiction. Um, and, and also because it was a very secretive part of um, state activity, it's only sort of now we're getting properly transparent histories just from the Americans, because everybody else classifies everything. The British are terrible for not releasing old documents, even from the old, early Cold War. So we just have the Americans to go on, really. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> um, well, it's good, good for good for me in academia to, to research yeah. and read about these things. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, you have um, infrared detection satellites in space. Um, and um, this is a series of um, satellites designed to detect missile launches from the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And it was very improving. They didn't know it was going to work. And the technology exceeded all their expectations. Um, so not only could they reliably detect um, missile launches, which would allow the US president to have 30 minutes to decide whether to retaliate with nuclear weapons as opposed to five minutes. So that's mm. quite an important change. So you're not like, You've got five minutes to decide whether you want to destroy the Soviet Union because we think we're about to be hit. If you have 30 minutes, you can do a lot more due diligence on the warnings in 30 minutes. <laughs> you could call someone um, up and say, what are you doing? Yeah. So that's the Defence Support Programme satellite. Um, and um, they were, not only were they able to detect that, they were able to tell, start telling the difference between other kinds of infrared blooms. 
so they could tell they could help uh, use it to predict weather formation and satellites based on cloud density and the kind of light reflected they could detect forest fires they could also detect the afterburners of jet fighters on it as well they could pick up explosions um when the conditions are right as well so the same satellites designed to detect the launch of nuclear weapons were used to detect weapons explosions and fuel depot and ammo dump explosions in the 1991 Gulf War as well. Um, and to predict so, the weather. And to help with the weather as well. <laughs> uh, so, um, and the current, the new generation of that system is called SPIRS, uh, S-B-I-R-S, the space-based infrared uh, system. So, um, uh, so, so that's an example of high-tech Cold War stuff actually changing the way um, top-level intelligence analysts and decision-makers could see what was going on around the world as well and has a lot of other applications too. But not many people know that history because it's quite eclectic uh, and restricted to um, to investigations in the ivory tower. <laughs> with, um, with, with, with the satellites, can they control them? Because did I read somewhere that a spy satellite can dip in orbit and then go up and take some pictures and t- go up. Can they control them and fly them around, or do they have to keep circling? Um, so once they're put into orbits, um, they're pretty much going to remain in that orbit, so an altitude plus the inclination. Um, so the altitude is how many kilometres away from sea level it is, and that can be from you know 200 kilometres to 40,000 kilometres, really. Um, and then it could have an inclinations, which means um, the latitude at which it peaks and then goes down to the other latitude. So if you have a 30 degree inclination, the high point and the low point um, of where it tracks on the latitude scale um, would go from 30 degrees north to 30 degrees south and then back up again whilst being at an orbit of, say, 500 kilometres. Um, so if you look at maps of, say, the International Space Station, it'll have an inclination somewhere like, I don't know, maybe 55, which is why occasionally you'll see it comes over the UK because um, southern parts of the UK are at like 52 degrees latitude, for example. It's, it's difficult to explain without any images, I find, because I'm not a scientist by training, so um, I'm sure that explanation didn't make much sense. But once you're locked into a certain orbit, it's very expensive on fuel to change your orbital mm. altitude or to change your inclination. Um, so the direction of the orbit as opposed to the altitude. Um, so once you're locked in, you know, you're pretty much there. You might be able to do minor maneuvers, but the more you do that, the less life your satellite will have because once you're out of maneuver fuel, that's it. You're stuck in that orbit. You can't do any changes. Um, so, so you are quite restricted, uh, really. So once it's up at, you know, if you're up at 36,000 kilometers geostationary orbit, that's all it's good for. It's going to be in geostationary orbit. Yeah. So, uh, Talina, your your nations arguably one of the, the the greatest space nations on Earth. Uh, our nation is arguably not one of the greatest. Where are we at in the UK then? What what how, what is the uh, UK's um, activities in space? Um, it's not big, but still bigger than many others. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very it's, it's it's distinctively middling. so that describes the uk in so many ways yeah so so you know the us is fairly you know exceptional in this regard especially since the collapse of the soviet union where the russian state wasn't really able to sustain a lot of the same space infrastructure 
and came back uh, once the oil money started kicking in and the modernization of the Russian economy settled down, stopped being so traumatic to itself. Um, but um, the UK has gone in dovetail really with the, the United States military uh, and intelligence space capabilities. So, you know, when we talk about military space and militarization of space, space has always been a military realm. And it's not just been something that the Americans or the Soviets have done. Many European countries have had a military space system for quite some time. So the primary sort of military space system for the UK is the Skynet SATCOM system. Um, and it predates Terminator by about 20 years. So, <laughs> make, yes. so it's not named after Terminator. Terminator is named after it, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, so the UK SATCOM system, it's a handful of satellites in geostationary orbit that provide wireless, secure, mobile satellite communications for military forces and intelligence requirements, intelligence agents. Um, in most places around the world, the biggest gap is really in the Pacific Ocean, uh, which is really down to the Americans now, because retreat of empire, collapse of the British Empire and all that. Um, so uh, so, that's, so that's the biggest thing that the British invent, uh, invested in, in terms of military space. Um, the British early on developed uh, their own space launch vehicle. Um, Black Knight, was it? Uh, Black Arrow. Black Arrow. Um, um, and that was based on the old British intermediate range ballistic missile, IRBM, to launch British nuclear weapons. Um, and that was part of a joint missile development program with the Americans from the 1950s and 1960s. But it was scrapped for various reasons to do with nuclear strategy. They were useless for Britain's position with the nuclear weapons. Better to put them on subs, really, and they needed a different kind of rocket. But they carried on developing the space launch vehicle called Black Arrow, and they launched one satellite successfully in 1971, and then it was scrapped, oh. saying there's no future in commercial satellite launches. <laughs> they were about 15 years ahead of the curve on that because 15 years later, there was quite a market. Um, but uh, the British then gave that technology to the European uh, Launcher Development Organization. Um, so they took on that technology. The French, the West Germans and the Italians were developing their own rocket tech and took that. And then eventually you had that organization and the European Space Research Organization club together with the UK to develop the European Space Agency. Mm -hmm. And that then eventually gave Europe its Ariane series of technologies, uh, which then allowed European countries to launch their own military and satellite technology, uh, satellites, sorry, military and um, intelligence satellites, um, and also assorted scientific uh, satellites as well through the European Space Agency. So, so has this um, survived, uh, has, has, has ESA and our membership survived Brexit? Yeah, so ESA is not uh, a part of the EU. Um, so, Britain's membership of ESA is staying put. There's no change there. However, you know, ESA and EU are in a relationship, um, and ESA is the prime contractor and operational agency for a lot of the EU's funded uh, space projects. The exception being that the EU operates the Galileo system. The Galileo is um, the EU's version of GPS. Um, so that is operated by the EU, but it was built and contracted out and designed by European Space Agency workers and um, and processes. Um, but a lot of other EU-funded projects like Copernicus, they're still done every day by ESA. And the EU is the single biggest contributor to ESA's budget now as well. Mm. Um, and France and Germany and Italy um, are the biggest member state contributors to ESA, who are also EU member states. 
Um, Britain is the fourth biggest contributor to ESA as well. Italy's always invested more to ESA than Britain, um, for example. So, so Britain's been a bit aloof, really, with space. And um, a lot of the British recent successes in small satellite technologies and downstream applications of satellite data has been done really through benign neglect of the British state, really. Um, the British state, until you know, 10 years ago, took virtually no interest in commercial space What's um, our problem? What's, what's the, why is, I mean, I think we should... But, but, well, today, I mean, Britain makes about half the world's small satellites. Oh. Um, so, and America um, makes the biggest? Uh, America just makes a lot of everything, really, <laughs> <laughs> in space. Um, so, um, so small satellites are bigger than the micro-satellites with the, you know, Elon Musk's mega constellation. Those are like mm. smaller, smaller still. But the small satellites that are a few hundred kilos in size, um, uh, British universities and companies spin off from that. They pioneered that really and really found new off-the-shelf commercial technology that could be put into satellite packages. So, um, so it's only on the back of that commercial success that the British government has gotten more active in space policy and formed the UK Space Agency in 2010. But that's still only civil and science and industrial commercial stuff. The military stuff is still always on the MOD and um, GCHQ. Um, So GCHQ is our version of the American um, NSA. I think that's immensely interesting. I think... um I could, as I say this all the time when we, we interview people who talk about science and space and things that I could keep asking questions all night, but um, there be uh, there there are other things which uh, I'm sure our two listeners um, <laughs> 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 need to be getting on with. Um, so we might have to call it call it a day. But Bledon, it's been a, it's been a pleasure listening um, talking to you and actually getting some facts rather than my rather dodgy um, unchecked. <laughs> pieces of information alternative facts <laughs> alternative facts yes <laughs> time to come on our show there'll be more listeners yeah I know yeah, while. Um, well thank you very much um, so um, what's, your, what's your Twitter handle so uh, people um, uh, B-L-E-D-D-B at, at B- say it again uh, at B L E double D B Bravo Lima Echo Delta Delta Bravo. Fantastic, and I'm I'm just uh, uh, as I always say at the end, in case anybody will eventually tweet me, is uh, at Richard W News. And Tilina, you say you don't um, find telling- much currency in, in Twitter, but you, 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 you you're reigniting your. Uh, I know. I, I'm on, I'm on my Facebook and Instagram. So, so tell, tell us them all. So it's it's at Tales from Tilina. That's Twitter. Tales from Tilina. I think yes. I, I'm going to start it up again. <laughs> what? Well, tell us Instagram one. Oh, it's just Tilina Cooperi, and then Facebook's Tilina Cooperi. There's not you no know, Tilina Vincenza. There's not too many Tilinas, anyways. Apparently, no, there's yes. an American girl in Texas who calls herself Tilina Paris. So I don't know. But oh well, there we go. Um, incidentally. Um, interesting, uh, interesting factors. I was actually um, work doing doing the report at the European Parliament in Strasbourg, and I was speaking to um, a, a Scottish MSP. I mentioned your name, Tanina, and they knew you because they'd read you in the Daily Record. Nice. And the email address is um, talking transatlantic at outlook.com. 
and everybody says, why, why is it not Gmail? Because it isn't. <laughs> well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. If you get, ever get an invite to the Scottish Parliament, definitely worth a visit. I mean, inside, it's a, it's a fantastic building. It's a lovely, amazing gift shop as well. Because <laughs> hey. we both we studied in Edinburgh. I know. Yes. Right. Remember, I used to work in a bar uh, close by there, so all you know, yeah. politician was going late at night, and that was funny. <laughs> yes, Talina, um, Talina made net- networking. I think is, is the yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I think that's it. Thanks for for listening. Thanks to our special guest, Doctor Bleden Bowen. 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 Sorry. Yes. Bowen. Bowen. And <laughs> Selena Capari. Yeah. Capari, okay. Capari, tomato, tomato, whatever. Potato, potato. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Ta-da.